In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. I think it's fair to say that our body is the only home that many of us have known on this planet, and the only way that we have known ourselves to be at home. Christ has opened in our hearts a place for another home to begin and another life to be lived. But we still have one foot in each of the two worlds, the two kingdoms, the two bodies, if you like. When this earthly body's needs are met, we are at peace. When they are not, we suffer. And if the earthly body's needs are not met, it's very difficult to go beyond to the needs of the spiritual that has been planted in our hearts. Because these earthly needs, our bodily needs, need to be met constantly, and if they're not, the soul and the body soon go their separate ways, much of the work of our lifetime is keeping the body happy, warm and fed and well. Not that the soul and the spirit cannot disturb our peace and give us suffering of its own. It can. Always restless, seeking its way back to God, seeking to take this earthly body to union with God forever as its default mode. After all, those are its factory settings. The soul asks the body to give it what only God can. That sense of union, that longing to belong satisfied at last. Here on earth, we look for substitutes, but they do not last. We need to love and to be loved, as we've already heard. It is as simple as that. The longing of our lives, our heart's desire, is to want what God wants for ourselves and for others. To love and to be loved. To give and to forgive. To live in relationship, in peace, in shalom. Seven billion people plus is a lot to love. Even seven is impossible at times. And if we're to widen our arms and include every sentient being, as God seems to indicate and many of his saints have been quite clear about, then we have quite an embrace indeed to ask for. But we can commit in prayer to anything. We can commit to live with one another as best we can, even maybe to live for one another. Not just to live and let live. Better than that, as Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. We are dead, men and women, dead to this earth, dead to its pomp and its glory and its promises, dead to all that. Our hearts cannot be touched or hooked by promises of earthly glory in whatever form. One has died for all, therefore all have died for all. 
and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Simple enough. (laughs) That those who live might no longer, no longer, not at all from this moment forward or from the moment you and I first believed, live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our life is not our own, as he says elsewhere, we were bought at a price. And the way to live for him, as he says elsewhere, is to live for one another. Better than that, to have him in us. Do our living and our loving for us, with us, through us. That's what it means when the Holy Spirit breaks through into that heart of stone, explodes, and begins to take a new life there. How to do that? With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. Jesus tells us how to live in love. He tells us in his word. He is that word of love. And everything about him seeks to speak that word into being in others again and again. Jesus is the word, and the word is a creative word. He speaks, and things that are not come into being. And they have a logic, a logos to them, a pattern, a plan, a template for life embedded in them like DNA in the seed of a plant. He tells us in parables what it would be like to live as if that DNA in us had really taken charge, as if he were in charge, as if he ruled the world and the world was run by the rules he put in place when he spoke the word into being and spoke the world into being by his word. The kingdom of God, we call it, and we pray every day, thy kingdom come for all the world as if it had not yet come, and we're not coming any time soon. It's kind of an escape hatch for us, if you like, even that prayer. The parables, however, are to let us see with the eyes of faith, And what we see with the eyes of faith is not just that the kingdom is coming, but that the signs are of its coming, what those signs are, how it has to look, how to bring it into being. In the parable of the sower, and sower and seed are the master narrative for the parables in general, the template, the code, if you like, for the others. We have heard just a few verses before what we heard today that he said to them, listen, behold, A sower went out to sow, dot, dot, dot. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, the sower sows the word, the logos. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Accept it, embrace it, come to believe something to be true and to respond accordingly, to welcome the word into their hearts as they would an honored guest. And then get to work. Yes, but first, the word goes to work. And here's the part we see today. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We've heard that. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. 
The earth produces by itself. What do we have to do with our salvation? Nothing. God does everything. God plants the seed in our hearts. And when the conditions are right, God bursts the tough, dry, hard walls of that little seed, packed with energy and information, and he lets it break apart. The seed dies at that point, and it becomes something else, a living plant, or at least it has every chance. The word does its work on us, if you like. God works on us, within us. The word works us, even in our sleep, especially in our sleep. The word works away, mysteriously, inscrutably, irresistibly, deep within us. For that soil in which it slumbers until it is awakened is deep. Here we go a little bit into botany. But lessons of agriculture would have been known to everybody then. Deep and rich is that soil, a strong matrix of organic and inorganic substances. And soil has a structure. That structure must be open enough to allow water to flow through, closed enough to keep the water there so it may dissolve the nutrients that the plant requires. Somehow that seed, just scattered on the hard ground, knows up from down. It knows when it can put down its roots and break through into that soil. And in that dark underground, the roots begin to feel their way to where the water is to be found. And as the roots grow, they get a grip. The structure of the soil embeds the structure of the plant, and it sends its shoots heavenward. God doesn't take a plant out of heaven and stab it into the ground and say, here you are. Our growth, our growth in faith, our growth as a new creation starts from the ground up. It starts in the darkness where those roots reach out. And if those roots don't connect and don't begin to pull that water in, the rest of the plant has little hope. And we've heard that in the parable we didn't read. The structure sends its shoots heavenward and it knows where heaven is. It can feel where the light and the sky are to be found. Here, other structures Help it reach for the sky, for the light of the sun, which does its work of transformation, capturing and holding energy so that it can produce and reproduce, giving life to others, to its species as sustenance and sustaining its own longevity as new individuals are propagated from the parent plant. We're told in the psalm, that they shall still bear fruit in old age. That's good news for me. But no plant, not even the bristlecone pine, lives forever. The individual lives by giving its life to the species through other individuals. The father, if you like, creates daughters and sons. The mother and father come together in this beautiful parable of soil and sky and sun and water and earth. And they create 
those seedlings that will be scattered abroad in the hope that they too will take root and find life. It's life through death and death through life. And our growth so often follows this paschal pattern. Life comes only when we die. We cannot have new life in Christ until the old life has died with all its dreams. We go out and we learn to live then as bearers of fruit. We live in community for all life is made for community. Life is interdependence. But we bear the fruit and we offer the fruit that feeds the seed it bears within or bears its life in sacrifice for something else. Only then might the sower step in, cutting channels to bring in water or taking manure and spreading it around on the soil. They found that out 9,000 years ago. It works very well. That's what it takes. You can add to the nutrients. You can add to the water. But you can only add to what is there. Otherwise, as the Greek says, the work of God in the seed is automatic. That's the word, automatic, acting by itself. And so must we be as we seek to grow. We often want to jump ahead with God. When we get the sense of that seed growing, we want to get ahead of Jesus. But Jesus says, let me lead, but don't get too far ahead of me. Don't get too far behind me. Attend, tend with me, with patience and prayer, the work that is still to be done. And the word works in us, crafting order out of chaos and filling the structure with life, just as the word did in the beginning. Structures of belief filled by the Spirit. This is what it is to be embodied with God's Spirit, to be incarnate, to have the Spirit live within the flesh. That means living within limits, for the body is limited. It does not live forever. It's a historic thing. It's explicit, not implicit. It comes to root at a particular moment in time. It does what it can, and then it dies. So the life can go on. And somehow, in some mystery, as re-embodied beings, soul, spirit, and body come together again on the other side. Now, the problem with bodies is that they can be hurt. As Jordan Peterson says, the one thing people believe in, really, the one thing that people believe in is their own pain. As materialists, yes, we believe in the atoms, the molecules, the elements that make us up. As spiritual beings, we nod our assent to the new life within. But as human beings, the one thing we know we do not make up is our own pain. People act as if their pain was real, as if there was nothing more real, in fact. And a life embodied is a matter of seeking to avoid, excuse me, to avoid suffering. And what we call happiness, in so many ways, we're talking about that before the service, is not the joy or elation or ecstasy that it could be. Mostly what we want to get out of this earth is simply 
the absence of pain. We'll settle for that happily. And if it comes right down to it, we'd rather be seeds safe in a glass jar, dried for eternity, that tough, dry husk around us, protecting us from the scary world outside, than to be thrown into the earth. That's the last place we want to go, to die and give birth to who knows what, only God. The fear of pain and the inevitability of pain and the anxiety that brings, that fear turns to anger. And when we turn that anger back on God, as we so often do, we have a way of taking that anger out on other people instead. Now, I could segue here to all kinds of pain in this world. And I know the pain that is in the hearts and minds of all of us on this Father's Day. And it doesn't do any good for me to say no pain, no gain to anyone else except myself. For us to inflict pain on those who are unwilling to receive it is not at all what God is calling us to do. And I can look at our southern border, and as a Canadian, I can look at our history north of the border of taking children from their parents for almost a 100 years, First Nations children, and bringing them up somewhere else and doing all kinds of things to take their childhood, their identity, their being from them and make them into something in our image, thinking all the while that we were giving them God's image. We could have done better, and we still might. But I ask for a prayer for that, because that means to do that, that you have to open your arms to embrace a level of pain in your giving, which takes you way beyond your threshold of comfort and any certitude you have about culture and what culture means. We're here for the kingdom of God. And we want that kingdom always to emerge from the layers that culture places upon it and not the other way. But we trust that for all the pain we may suffer, there is a meaning and a truth beyond pain that as we somehow once more yet again find ourselves being torn apart by the pain of the world and growing older as the Psalms did not say means that the fruit we bear comes from our increasing awareness of the suffering of others. God's gift in store for all of us if we live long enough and grow is to feel more pain and more pain as it breaks through the tough, hard boundaries of cultures and nations, as it spreads around the world, as it breaks into the creatures and ultimately into the pain of all creation itself. It's all one. And God asks us to build no boundaries against the roots of his compassion, seeking out the life-giving waters of his spirit, where they are poured like tears onto the suffering of others. And we come as we face the impossibility of this task to a point of despair. 
we see the pain, we cannot see beyond it. We see the dreams of all of us, young and old, that we're already letting go of because they seem impossible. We see our children hobbled with things that they cannot seem to overcome, even before they get into school. And our hearts break. God bids us not to withdraw, to retreat, to have our hearts hardened. We are still to be broken apart so we can bear fruit. But as we do that, as we go into that place where only endurance seems to be, that wilderness and all hope is gone, God gives us a hope that is deeper and purer, more deeply rooted and more radiant with the light of his love than any hope we've ever had. We have to die every step of the way. And he gives us back something better. We have to give everything we have and are to him if we want it. And he gives us back something that is not what we wanted, but so much, so much better. So I leave us with that thought. We face the judgment seat of God, as Paul reminds us. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or ill. Yes, that is true. But we bear with us the sure and certain hope of the mercy of Christ as well. That whatever we have failed to do or will fail to do has been forgiven to he who opened his arms of love to embrace the whole creation on the cross and promised us that as he lives his life through us, in us, for the world, that his forgiveness, his grace, his peace, his love, will carry us with it wherever we go. Amen. Please stand. Thank you.